Samer, Syria has dropped off the headlines in the U.S. media. Meanwhile, the latest offensive against Idlib began in March and has intensified since April 26. As a result of recent bombardments by Syrian regime and Russian forces, the civilian death toll has mounted in and around Idlib in the last few weeks specifically. Meanwhile, uh, nearly 300,000 people have fled towards Turkey's border. This has been described as the single largest mass displacement in Syria since the beginning of the uprising in 2011. Can you talk about the latest developments in the province? The attacks against Idlib that have started recently are really the culmination of a strategy that the regime and its allies have implemented since the Russians intervened in uh, September 2015. And essentially what happened uh, after the Russian intervention was that people and civilians and fighters in the areas where the regime and its allies were intervening were given the option of essentially staying and pledging allegiance to the regime or leaving to Idlib. And this is what was a kind of simple strategy of displacement. They said, if you don't want to follow us, if you don't want to accept that we are retaking this territory, then you have the option of going to Idlib. And so many of the armed groups actually uh, kind of took this deal and there was a system of kind of passage that allowed them to go to Idlib. And the strategy started in the southern part of Syria and then spread throughout. And so what you had was over the last few years, hundreds, thousands of fighters and civilians who are making their way into Idlib. And effectively, what that did was concentrate all of the armed groups that remained in opposition to the regime. It concentrated them into Idlib. And so you have this concentration of fighters, a concentration of, of armed groups that are uh, still opposed to the regime in Idlib, that it was believed had the, the political and military cover of the Turkish government. This was uh, kind of Turkish leverage, if you will, in Syria. And it was really understood that the conflict was moving towards a confrontation there in Idlib. And so this is what we're seeing today, essentially, is this uh, kind of inevitable confrontation that has been brought about by the concentration of the armed groups in the province. This is, I don't want to say it's the last frontier for the regime, but in many ways, this is considered, I think, to be the last major battle to eliminate the armed groups. The Syrian regime has expanded the territory under its control since 2016, following the Russian military intervention. But the regime does not seem to have the capacity to govern in, it, in these areas that it ostensibly controls. It faces increasing challenges in providing basic goods and services to the population. Now that the regime has declared victory over the opposition, is it reasonable to think that it is under significant pressure from the segments of the society that are fatigued by the war and are demanding that their economic conditions improve? Absolutely. Uh, one of the major pressures I think that the regime faces and that we don't, we don't consider enough is precisely what you're saying, this sort of internal pressure uh, from uh, not just loyalist communities, because that's a very complicated term, but citizens, communities that are under regime rule. And there's a real sense that the regime has to now provide those services that people have been cut off from for years. And this is part of the, the legitimacy of the regime as it returns. You know, this is actually a, a very core question of the legitimacy of the regime. It's not just about having 
uh, uh, quote unquote, liberated the areas from from the armed groups, but the extent to which the regime is now able to marshal resources into these areas. And unfortunately, I think what we're seeing is um, two uh, kind of contradictory patterns that I think are going to aggravate this tension. On the one hand, the regime is now ruling through violence, ruling through security. So what you have is even if there might be an acknowledgement of the need to provide uh, services, the regime is continuing to rely on uh, militia groups, on its own army, on the police force, basically on the apparatuses of violence to keep people in check. And what that means is that there isn't as much attention being devoted to bringing in resources for, say, rebuilding schools or hospitals or whatever. And the second pattern is that based on everything that I understand happening inside of the country and based on what many people that I speak to that come in and out of the country, the regime's reconstruction focuses very much on the cities. And so those geographic and social peripheries of the country that have been really hard hit by the conflict are not going to have a lot of resources devoted to them. And so you have in these areas where the regime is returning, what we have is a kind of rule through violence. And at the same time, the reconstruction policies that are being implemented or that are being uh, kind of imagined are really urban focused. They're not, they're not focused so much on the peripheries. Syrian economy appears to have further deteriorated over the past year. There are acute shortages of fuel, gas, and electricity, even in the capital, Damascus, which has been under full control of the regime throughout the conflict in Syria. Some media outlets have been reporting of disaffection among those who have been supporting the regime during the civil war. Can you talk about the state of economy in Syria as well as credibility of such reports? Mm. I think the reports are very credible because although people may have uh, supported the regime or not supported the opposition, whatever their politics were, there's been a real sense of suffering in the country. I think that you do have the increasing visibility of the elites who had benefited from the war. We see this in many different ways in Syria, but in general, the majority of the population that has remained in Syria, especially in and around Damascus, the areas that were under regime control, they've suffered considerably. And I think that the regime's principal economic strategy has been to slowly manage this deterioration so that it's not a collapse, it's more a kind of gradual deterioration. And what that means is that subsidies have been slowly lifted. And when there's too much unrest because of this, when there's a lot of complaining because of this, you have the reintroduction of some subsidies. For example, fuel is a really interesting thing because one of the first things the regime did when the uprising started was to reintroduce the fuel subsidy, was to reintroduce certain food subsidies, because it was an acknowledgement that those kinds of uh, market interventions were supportive of the citizens of the populations that were supportive of the regime. And so they've really played this back and forth on the subsidy issue throughout. But the question is, where the regime's future fiscal or financial sorry, resources are going to come from. And everybody that I speak to who thinks about this, who is inside of the country, says that there's just an assumption that the regime's allies will come to its economic rescue. And I don't think that we're really seeing that. So I, I anticipate that what we'll continue to see is this kind of management of, of economic collapse 
the introduction withdrawal of subsidies uh, and these kind of really band-aid attempts to to solve what are really long-term economic problems and I think what that means ultimately is that there will be this continued tension between the regime and uh, especially its urban populations. So let's talk about this expectation that the regime's allies would come to its support. It's mm. estimated that the Iranian regime has spent 12 to $15 billion annually to keep the Syrian regime in power. Iran had also been assisting Syria with its energy needs. Uh, since Syria currently has to import around 80% of its energy needs from abroad. Prior to the imposition of sanctions by Trump administration, Iran had been shipping an estimated 1 to 3 million barrels of oil in a month to Syria. But it looks like the U.S. sanctions have adversely impacted Iran's ability to finance the Syrian regime and provide for its energy needs. Well, what's interesting about this is that Within Syria, my sense is that many people believe that sanctions or no sanctions, the, the Iranian regime will always be present to, to support the regime economically. I think what the sanctions have done have really put um, kind of stranglehold on that. And I think we see that. This is not uh, a case where sanctions are uh, not working. They're actually uh, working in a very blunt and and uh, destructive way, mostly for the Syrian population. I mean, this is ultimately who is who is suffering from, from these practices. But in general, the Syrian regime does not have really much leverage vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Iranian regime or the Russians or Chinese government or any other of its allies. It's not really producing anything to trade. It doesn't have money. It is not really a credible lender at this point. It's unclear how they will generate revenues to pay back all of these loans. What I think what we're seeing is particular patterns where Iranian and Russian companies and increasingly Chinese companies are afforded kind of reconstruction uh, contracts, if you will. These aren't formal contracts in the sense that the government is allowing them, or is, is asking these companies to come in and say, rebuild bridges or rebuild hospitals and then paying them. But they're providing different ways to funnel, say, public resources like land, for example. So many Iranian companies are actually uh, assuming ownership of land in Syria. They're assuming ownership of existing factories. And so sort of in exchange for uh, the transfer of ownership or the transfer of responsibility for these factories, Iranian companies are coming in and kind of, in a way, investing, if you will, in Syria. And so there's this shift, uh, this transfer of Syrian public resources to companies from many of these countries. And I think that it's very difficult to say that it's, it's a trade or it's sort of bartering, but effectively that's what's happening. The, the Iranian regime is providing um, different kinds of uh, financial support to the Syrian regime. And what we're seeing is uh, the benefit accrued in these companies. So that's the way to pay back, basically. Es essentially, yeah. It's very difficult to determine how it seems to me like it's a very clear deal. You know, that in exchange for these kinds of supports, 
that there will be Iranian kind of commercial interests increase in Syria. And so we see this, I mean, everything from infrastructural projects to trade and transport, you know, all these sorts of things that you see Iranian companies coming into Syria. And what that's doing is effectively crowding out Syrian business people who are now having to compete with with Iranian companies who are given, you know, essentially given these contracts. So that's essentially the trade-off that's happening. And I think that explains why the Iranian regime continues to provide all of this financial support to the Syrian regime. It's not just a matter of its survival, but there is a commercial interest involved there. Much has been said and written about the competition between Russia and Iran in Syria in securing resources in order to exercise more control over the regime and maintain their strategic influence in Syria. What are these exogenous powers seeking to gain in Syria? Yeah, I think that to some extent we have to take seriously the tension. We definitely have to take seriously the tension between Russian and Iranian interests, but we also need to take seriously the possibility that their interests are compatible. In the same way that we need to think of the compatibility of Russian and American interests in Syria. Now, it's clear that principally the Russian regime and the Iranian regime have a stake in the preservation and continuity of the Syrian regime. Now, I think that the Russians are more willing to contemplate an alternative leadership structure, but in general, I think that they are committed to the continuity of the regime. I don't think that this is principally, say, an economic competition between Russia and Iran. I think that you know, I think that there's enough of the pie, so to speak, to go around. And I don't think that their, whatever their military or geopolitical interests are, I don't think that we've really seen an incompatibility there. And I think that if you consider what Israel has been doing over the course of the conflict in terms of its, you know, its attacks on Syria, which have been almost daily. The Russians have really just sort of let this happen and the Iranians have not been able to stop it and have not really been public in their condemnation of it. And I think that's a great example of the way in which Russian and Iranian interests have just found a way to kind of live together on the Syrian battlefield. If we look at the fourth and fifth divisions of the Syrian army, effectively one, the the fifth division is controlled by Russia effectively. And the Syrian leader of that division is considered by many, his name is Suhail Hassan, is considered by many to be Russia's kind of principal point person inside of Syria. And the fourth division is led by Bashar al-Assad's brother. And, And that is seen as the kind of core of the army that is, uh, if not loyal, at least working with Iran. And I think, again, these are not divisions that are physically fighting each other, but they're different centers of power. Uh, And I think that that's ultimately what's emerging in Syria. And we should not also forget that for the Syrian regime, it's probably healthy for its own (laughs) stability and security to have Russian and Iranian interests played off one another. And so I think that there are tensions. I don't anticipate that any commercial or economic tensions between the two countries would compromise what has been this kind of battlefield compatibility. And I think that in many ways, 
on the core issues of regime stability, on the preservation of Syria's geography, on the question of, of Kurdish independence uh, or self-determination, on those kind of broader questions, there, there's actually agreement. And I think that that's what makes, say, for example, Israel's continued military intervention into Syria palatable in some ways to the Iranian regime. Are the Iranians and the Hezbollah militia involved in the Idlib operations? Absolutely. I think that this is, you know, what's what we've seen on the battlefield is that all of these forces that are aligned with the regime, whether it's the 4th Division of the Army, the 5th Division, the militias, Hezbollah, whatever, what they've done is essentially taken on different roles. There has been uh, coordination, but uh, as far as I understand, that the Russian forces only coordinate with certain Syrian actors on the ground and not others. But of course, they all have the same goal. They all have the same military goal, and they're all working towards that. And so they are, are all present, I think, in Idlib, because there's been a concentration of uh, forces there, and it's been understood for many, I mean, many of us have understood since 2015-16 when the strategy was being implemented that ultimately this was going to be the last major battle, if not the last, one of the last. Of course, there's also the, the looming question of, of how to deal with Kurdish aspirations uh, in Syria. Samer, last September, Russia, Turkey and Iran agreed to establish a demilitarized zone around Idlib to be patrolled by both Turkish and Russian troops. But the current offensive against Idlib has created tension between Russia and Turkey. In a telephone conversation with uh, Russian President Putin on May 30th, Turkish President Erdogan called for a ceasefire. But on the following day, Moscow pointed the finger of blame at Ankara, saying it was its responsibility to prevent the rebels from firing at civilians and Russian targets. Adding to this complicated mix is Mr. Erdogan's continued brinkmanship, if you like, between the US and Russia, and the reported use of Turkish airspace by Russian military aircraft in order to supply this airbase in Syria with missiles, which is somewhat puzzling. Can you help us understand this murky picture? <laughs> this is one of those really complicated uh, things in this. In the, I mean, it's all complicated, but these de-escalation zones or deconfliction zones were an innovation that came out of the Astana process. And it's what's interesting about them is that it also applies to this tri-border area in the southeast of Syria, where Syria, Jordan, and Iraq meet, where there's an American military base. And that's precisely the same agreement that the Russian and American military came to in that area. Essentially, I think there was a 55-kilometer radius zone where the Americans exercised control over that area. And whenever any Syrian militias have tried to get in there, they've been attacked by the Americans. And so the, the Russians had come up with this idea that you would have geographic areas of the country that would be de-escalated. But the Russians were also really, really brilliant in not only creating these zones where there was not supposed to be any violence, but giving themselves the right to break de-escalation, if you will. And the logic was always, we will not attack these areas if the people in those areas do not attack us. And what we're seeing in Idlib is just really an excuse 
uh, they're saying, oh, well, no, they're attacking civilians. They're attacking us. They started firing. They are the ones that broke this de-escalation agreement. And it's really just, it's silly in a way. I mean, we shouldn't take it very seriously. It's always kind of been understood that they, they were going to break it at some point because they started doing it throughout the country in, in other ways. They would declare these areas uh, de-escalation zones or de-confliction zones and say, nobody's allowed to shoot here. Nobody's allowed to bomb here except us. And then it was really really to give them an opportunity to uh, refuel, if you will, their forces. And so I think unlike in the case of the American military in the Southeast, which has the capacity to prevent the penetration in the deconfliction zones, the, the Turkish military uh, is not able to. And I would be extremely surprised, shocked, actually, if this was not part of the bargaining of the Astana process that's happening between the countries. I'm surprised the Idlib offensive has taken until this long. I don't see any particular reason why they would have waited until now to start. So I have to believe that Turkish acceptance of uh, Russian-led intervention into Idlib was based on some bargaining or negotiations through this kind of tripartite formula. So you think there might be a tacit agreement between the Syrian and Russian governments? Over well, Idlib? I think what Astana did, so we should contrast... I mean, is, what, it, is it true that uh, Turkish airspace is being used for supplying the, air, the Russian airbase in Syria? I would not be surprised. I, I would not be surprised. So this is somewhat cynical. Uh, yeah, it, well, it, it is really it is really cynical, but I think it reflects the kind of conflict management mechanisms uh -huh. that exist in Syria right now. So the contrast with Astana might be deliberative process, right, where you have parties who are negotiating who might be saying, you know, this is what's on the table, this is what's off the table. There's no such process on offer for Syria, and that's by design. And I think that what happened when the Astana process was created is that it was presented as an alternative to the UN process. But that was based on the idea of mediation, of deliberation, of a give and take. And that's never been on offer seriously for Syria. And I think that what Astana did was provide a space for the negotiation of those kind of shared interests of the three powers to negotiate these major questions. So sure, there's going to be some sort of constitutional committee in Syria, there's going to be election. I mean, we just saw the local elections a few months ago, like, sure, you know, all these things are happening. You know, to some extent, they're important. But the real bigger picture issues around Idlib, around the future of the Kurdish political elements, these things, I think they're negotiated and agreed upon in Astana. And I don't think if they weren't, then why would the Turkish government not have withdrawn, for example? Then why would the Turkish government have not publicly come out and said, you know, we are no longer committed to Astana, Astana is a joke, and uh, it's sort of the, the war's back on. So I think that what we've seen in the lead up to Idlib is not just a kind of military preparation, but also a political one as well. Because the, I think there's in, in many ways, and this is of course extremely cynical, in many ways there's almost a perfect trade-off that the, the regime and its allies um, do not want to see um, Idlib kind of continue as this, you know, 
just a place where there's all these armed groups and whatever. Uh, and the Turkish government does not want the realization of Kurdish political aspirations. And I think it's this um, almost perfect trade-off because what, what happened with the armed groups, if, you know, another way to think about it, of course, is the relationship between the armed groups and Idlib and Turkey. Now, what we've seen uh, since the Russian intervention is that these groups are not really operating independently of the Turkish government. And we've seen when they have uh, engaged in, say, attacks in some cases, when they have withdrawn in others, when they have come to uh, Astana, because there have been some groups that have been invited and so on. And a lot of the, the, the bigger battlefield and political decisions that were being made by many of these armed groups were not being taken independently of, of, of the Turkish government. And, and so they had effectively transformed into proxies of the Turkish government. And I think that that, that relationship, that hierarchy, that dependence of the armed groups on Turkey for their um, political and military protection was something that Turkey could offer in these tripartite negotiations. Let's deconstruct this notion of peace in Syria. Since you did talk about how the agreement over Idlib was part of the, a broader framework of the escalation zones that Astana process produced, in your book, Syria, you argue that Astana process could only result in what you call Syria's authoritarian peace, quote-unquote. You identify five features of this authoritarian peace. Can you elaborate on that? So one of the questions that I struggled with in writing the book, and I think all of us are struggling to think about, is that as we think the Syrian conflict is winding down, as we see a kind of quote-unquote military victory on the part of the regime and its allies, how can we describe what's happening in Syria? How can we describe the future of the country? It's not peace, and it's not the same thing as the war. And the language that I use is actually um, an academic term from somebody named David Lewis, who poses this problem and says, you know, how do we describe these situations in which you don't have negotiated solutions, you don't have deliberations between warring parties, you don't have these compromises, what you have is really the imposition of, of one party on not the other but you know on a kind of population if you will so that's the I, I borrow that language of authoritarian peace to describe the forms of peace that are emerging in syria but i don't see them as peaceful so i don't see what's happening in syria what's emerging in syria as a kind of post-conflict order in which any political aspirations are realized. I don't see it as a place without violence. I don't see it as a place without the kind of economic deterioration and collapse that we were discussing earlier. Rather, I'm seeing it in another way. So I'm, I think that what's emerging in Syria is a post-conflict order in which violence is central, not the opposite. Violence remains very important, and we'll see a kind of continued, low-level, constant marshalling of violence by the government and its allies. So if we think of Afghanistan or Iraq, they certainly don't have peace in those countries, but they certainly don't have kind of conditions of civil war. And that's really where, where I think Syria is moving towards. I think that because you don't have a reconciliation process, because there is no formal peace process where different 
communities deliberate. I think you have the persistence of enmity. There will still be a lot of social discontent in the population. And I think importantly, and this is uh, speaks to our previous discussion, that the Syrian regime will no longer have kind of autonomy and decision making, that now it is effectively ceded much of its sovereignty and has become a kind of almost a geopolitical pawn to be played by the tripartite powers. And so what we're seeing in Syria is not the same thing as war as it was in 2013 or 2017, but we continue to see the conditions for violence, displacement, and the kinds of economic dislocations that we were talking about earlier. In fact, talking about continued violence in Syria, you write in your book, and I quote, there are entrenched interests that have developed over the course of the conflict, and the continued misery and poverty induced by the war will continue to incentivize violence and criminality. One of the interesting things that I think has happened in Syria is that as people... um, as people figured out how to cope during conflict, they had to rely extensively on networks of violence and networks of armed groups that were able to move products from one place to another, that were able to smuggle people, that were able to forge documents, these sorts of things. And I think that what happened was that this created the conditions for the emergence of a conflict elite, of an elite that had made money, that had made profits, that had opportunities that were directly related to the war. So to give you one example, one thing that we've seen in Syria is as many of the business people have left the country. I mean, we're talking many of the the big, small, middle business people in Syria over since 2011 have left the country. And many of those who stayed were put under sanctions. And so they were really uh, circumscribed in their ability to kind of pay for things, to import, to export. And what happened is they started relying on what we, these like nobodies, these business people who did not have a lot of assets, did not really have big companies, did not have, were not major players in the Syrian economy prior to the war. They started cultivating these elites to come in and play this sanctions busting role. And and these elites came in and they effectively served as intermediaries between the regime and its elite and the outside world. So they were able to import, they were able to get contracts, they were able to uh, make payments, do all of those things that the big fish were no longer able to do. And then over time, they would be put on sanctions, uh, under sanctions and so on and so on. So this process kept kind of happening. And now you have a huge class of business people who serve this role as intermediaries in the conflict that are now um, trying to get into the formal economy, trying to participate in reconstruction. They are, we see them now on the boards of companies, on the boards of holding companies. We see them on the boards of banks, on the boards of the chambers of commerce and industry. And you've had that kind of turnover throughout the economy. And then, of course, there's the smuggling networks that do everything from tax populations, you know, set up checkpoints to raiding, raiding aid convoys to make money. And so all of these different centers of gravity, of power, emerge throughout the conflict. And I think it'll be really difficult to kind of, you know, unmoor them to that, unmoor them to violence. Samir, when you're discussing Syrians' authoritarian peace in your book, 
you basically characterize it as this is quote unquote better than conflict peace. And basically you're saying that it promises to deliver reduced violence and regime continuity. And you mentioned this earlier, there are no political reforms or political transformations envisioned in Astana process, is there? No, I mean, nothing of substance that we would consider to be a concession to the political opposition. So there are very few things that are included in Astana that will not further entrench the power of the regime. I mean, we know that there's been, you know, this kind of insistence on a secular constitution by the Russians, and there are, you know, minor things here and there. But in terms of how power is distributed within the country, all of these changes do not affect that question of power distribution. The municipal or the local elections that had happened in Syria I said earlier it was a few months ago. It's possible it was longer than that. But fairly recently, the local elections had taken place in accordance with a constitutional amendment that was passed during the conflict. And the idea was, at least in the kind of hopes and dreams of, of some people, was that the, the local elections would provide the space, if not now, in the long term, for the creation of power centers that could oppose the regime. And not oppose the regime in the sense of creating new conflict or anything like that, but oppose the regime in the sense of being able to spend money autonomously from the regime to elect people and so on and so on. So it was this kind of backdoor way to democracy. And I know that many Syrian political opposition people were kind of talking about the generation ahead, you know, using these local elections as a way to create power autonomous from the regime for the next 20 years, 25 years, things of that nature. But the kind of core governance questions of, say, you know, revenues and how you acquire them, how you spend them, these sorts of things, they, they're not really addressed in a way that threatens the regime's power. And so I think that it might be too early to tell, or it might be the case in my kind of cynical reading of the political changes that are coming out of Astana, that they're mostly cosmetic. Because if we accept that the political changes coming out of Astana are going to be progressive or democratic, then we also have to accept that that's coming out of a process led by three regimes that are not democratic and progressive, uh, which is Turkey, Russia, and Iran. One other player that we should talk about is the U.S., United States. Mm. You argue that the current U.S. administration has effectively ceded this ground to Russia and the Astana process. You wrote, as in the case with the Obama administration's selective engagement in Syria to combat ISIS and ignore the regime, the Trump administration has similarly taken measures to shore up the regime and enforce Russian designs for Syria. This is the quote is being closed here. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so I think that there to some extent is continuity between the Obama and Trump administrations. Now let's ignore Trump's tweets and whatnot about Syria, about withdrawing and all these things. And the continuity is in the is in these kind of very limited American interest in Syria. So we know that the Americans never had regime change in mind. If it happened, it happened, that they were never kind of politically or militarily committed to it. That effectively what they were committed to 
was a kind of uh, stalemate on the battlefield. And that's why they supported some armed groups, but not a lot. They supported the opposition in some ways, but not in other ways, that they actually were, in many ways, tried to maintain the the political military stalemate that existed in the country. And when the Russian intervention broke that stalemate, I think that the Americans were able to kind of re-articulate their interests in Syria in a broader regional sense. So now the United States has, I think, anywhere between 12 and 19 military bases in Syria that we don't really know that much about. And those military bases are connected to this you know, mysterious, never-ending war on terror, war on ISIS, war on who knows what. And I think that the American interests became not in the preservation or the whatever of the Syrian regime. I think that's kind of irrelevant to them in some ex- to some extent, but rather the, the continued presence of the American military in order to launch regional attacks and to have a regional presence. And I think that that was ultimately compatible with Russian interests. And I think what we're seeing in the country, or uh, what we're seeing in terms of U.S. policy is a complete kind of indifference in a way to to what happens inside of Syria. And you see this in a kind of really crude way, you know, the president of the United States tweeting how awful it is to what's happening in Idlib as if he's just some sort of observer, you know, just watching what's going on. And also as if his own military has not contributed to immense civilian suffering in Syria with near daily attacks since 2013-14. I mean, we, we can't forget what role the American military played in the destruction of Raqqa and indeed in surrounding areas. And so I think that Again, this is what I was referring to earlier in terms of the compatibility of Russian and American interests in Syria. I think the American interests are are more regional. I think that there's a momentum in the American military industrial complex to have bases around the world. I mean, this is why we have so many bases and launching pads and all these uh, strange names that they use to describe the American military presence throughout the world. But I think that's been important. And I think that the American military did not want to give that up, and they found a way through agreement with the Russians inside of Syria to maintain that presence in the country. And I think that all of those other questions, democracy and the regime and Assad and Idlib and all these things, they're, they're, they're irrelevant, I think, to the Americans at this point. Well, this may be a good place to discuss the Kurdish question in Syria, since we are mm. talking about the Astana peace process and also the presence of the United States troops in Syria. Can you talk about what you call differential and unequal incorporation of Syria's Kurds into the Syrian state, which was an important feature of Syrian politics up until the 2011 uprising? And the reason I ask that is for us to have a sort of a backdrop to the Kurdish disaffection and the Kurdish demands. How likely is it that a post-conflict Syrian authority can incorporate Kurdish autonomy into the larger political body in ways that satisfies Kurdish political demands? That's a great question. So I think we have to think about it first in terms of how the regime dealt with all opposition movements. And that was to atomize the movements, to create kind of individuals and not parties. So you had Kurdish individuals who would oppose the regime. You had 
you know, oppositionists as people, not as kind of movements. And I think that the general repression directed towards the Syrian Kurds took place within this kind of broader, you know, attempt to atomize society and atomize political movements. And it manifested quite violently in the Syrian Kurdish case because Syrian Kurds were not extended citizenship. They did not have a lot of economic and social rights and had lived in these very kind of precarious ways throughout Syria, not just in the kind of northeastern parts of the country in which there are many, many Syrian Kurdish communities. And I think that when they, so when the uprising happened, Syrian Kurds were really, could say, as a political movement or as a political unit, even with fragmentations, was not incorporated into the state as such. And so there was no space for the articulation of any Syrian Kurdish interests, whether they were uh, independent of broader Syrian national interests or inclusive of them. And I think that when the uprising happened, there was always this tension between the Syrian Kurdish political interests, which were fragmented, you know, they were never kind of coherent, there are different, different elements in competition with each other, and that were tied to regional Kurdish interests. And so you had a kind of, if you will, a, a Turkish branch where there was, you know, some Syrian Kurdish groups that were more aligned with Turkish Kurds, and some that were more aligned with, you know, the Barzanis and other groups inside of Iraqi Kurdistan. They and basically represented two completely different political discourses. It, exactly. So we should reject the idea that there was Syrian Kurdish unity in any way. And there's been a lot of debate within the Syrian Kurdish community about how to and whether to deal with the Syrian opposition, whether their interests are national or ethnic or, you know, these kind of ethno-nationalist interests. Do we deal with the regime? Do we not? Do we deal with the Americans? Do we not? I mean, there really was a lot of debate within the Syrian Kurdish community. And there was always this tension between the larger Syrian political opposition. And in part, that had to do with this history of Kurdish exclusion from, from Syrian politics. It also had to do with the ways in which I think Syrian Kurds saw themselves not incorporated into the visions of the Syrian opposition, you know, as like kind of an afterthought. And so it, there were these kind of fragmented interests that were at play in the Syrian Kurdish community. And, and nevertheless, that said, we did see a kind of major rise in military and political power of the Syrian Kurdish community that was expressed in Rojava and then the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria. And we should distinguish between what the Western perception of that project and its reality. So the Western perception of the project is of some anarcho-communist haven where everyone ruled and was happy and it was democratic and so on. And I think the reality is that there was a tremendous amount of repression that was marshaled, not just against Syrian Arabs, but Syrian Kurds, in order to realize these projects. And I think that we should not confuse the attempt to create these kind of liberatory spaces or these progressive spaces with the actual like with the actual politics on the ground and i think that a lot of people in the west were enamored with this idea of a kind of a narco-communist heaven 
in northeastern Syria, but I think the reality is quite different. And what happened militarily, at least, in the Syrian Kurdish kind of political landscape was that they were on the front lines of the fight against ISIS. And for that reason, became natural, if not temporary, partners of the United States military inside of Syria. And what we've seen, and we were in 2019 now, what we've seen is this kind of really strong ties between Syrian Kurdish and American military interests. And we've seen the fraying of those now. And I think that in the same way that the armed groups who are in Idlib could rely on Turkish political and military cover, I think the Syrian Kurds believe that the Americans would play the same role. And I, I simply don't think that that's the case. Like, I don't think that if there is a movement now to military confrontation in the Syrian Kurdish areas, I don't believe that the United States is going to risk its agreements or its understandings with Russia in order to save the Kurds. And what that means is, and this is what I was trying to think about in terms of the authoritarian peace, what it means is that any Syrian Kurdish political interests that emerge in the context of the conflict are unlikely to be integrated, whether it's through the constitutional amendments or anything of the sort, into the federal structure of Syria after the conflict. Now, does it mean that there might be local centers of power uh, that emerge? Yes, I mean, quite possibly. But I'm not entirely sure that the future of Syria holds a major constitutional amendment that would create something like the Kurdistan regional government in Iraq. I just don't see that uh, happening because that would reflect a major political compromise on the part of the regime and its allies that I think they're unwilling to make. Well, as you write in your book, the Rojava administration in the Kurdish region of Syria is not an ethnic-based authority or an ethnic project for Kurds. In fact, it seems to be modeled after the PKK's strategy or model for Turkey that these are not, you know, democratic autonomous areas, but they act like a confederation. You know, they're looking for a confederation of these autonomous mm. regions. It is actually a project based on a radical discourse, and we should mention that this is uh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, it it has certainly anti-capitalist tendencies and sort of looking for an alternative to the, the organization of the society as we stand today. It seems to me that this project and its administrative model, the Rojava administration, would be on a collision course even if all Kurds in Syria are granted the same legal rights as the rest of the population. Absolutely. So that project, in all its forms, is incompatible with this idea of the authoritarian peace in the way that it's emerging. And I think that this is why there's a major looming confrontation between the regime and the political military forces behind that project, that I'm not sure that there's any way to reasonably politically kind of integrate that project into the future of Syria. Now, maybe there's a confrontation and there's a stalemate and out of that emerges compromise. But I think that we would have seen something that moving us towards a compromise at this point, there would have been some sort of talks. There's no suggestion of it. And so right now, I think that the efforts to create this kind of autonomous project inside of Syria 
its longevity is in question. And I think that it's in question because it's incompatible with the visions of Syria that are coming out of Astana. I, I think and that the stance of the regional players on this issue, right? I mean, oh, Turkey, absolutely, Iran, absolutely. and Iraq would not, in the long term, they would not tolerate the existence of such models of autonomy. Absolutely, and I think that all along, this the assumption of the the Syrian Kurdish supporters of the project, the assumption was that the presence of the American military and the partnership between them on the ground would kind of midwife that in a way, that that would be the leverage that the Syrian Kurds could bring to the table in order to affect this compromise. And I think what we're seeing is that the Americans are unwilling to invest that political capital into that. And I, I'm sure, you know, 99% of us could have predicted that <laughs> from the beginning. So it was a only hat, I think the only partnership, the only chance they had to counter the weight of the regional players, which would, as you said, all would be against this. The only possible way was to uh, kind of enlist the Americans, if you will, as the, the regional player, and that's simply not going to happen. Or alternatively, if there had been, in fact, a democratic state established in Damascus, but that did not Absolutely. So Absolutely. That, that's probably yeah. what the uh, Rojava administration was counting on, I mean, some Absolutely. sort of a change, transformation in the capital, you know? So in 2013 and 14, when I spoke to many people who were involved in Syrian Kurdish politics, my reading of their politics at that time, this was not explicit, I mean, this is my understanding of it, was that they wanted to create a reality on the ground that the, both the Syrian opposition and the Syrian regime would have to contend with. So to some extent, the assumption was that there would be a process of compromise negotiation where the Syrian Kurdish leaders could say, look, this is what we have on the ground. Our options are independence, integration, you know, wh whatever it was. And so the project very much was a project with many futures. It could have had many futures. And I think that in the absence of political negotiations in the absence of compromise, it's unlikely that any of the futures that many of the people envisioned back then will be realized because the only way to create an autonomous Kurdish area in Syria, I mean, forget about the ethnic cleansing that's happened, forget about the violence and forget about the repression, forget about any of that stuff, forget about, as you suggested earlier, the disunity and the different visions within the Syrian Kurdish community. There, I can't envision the emergence of a Kurdistan regional government like we have in Iraq, in Syria, under the present conditions. But I think that five years ago, it was, it was much easier to envision that because you could see it coming out of political compromise, political negotiations, and now there's simply none. No deliberation between different uh, groups in Syria. It's now just the tripartite powers, it's Iran, Russia, Turkey, uh, deciding these, or at least coming to agreements on these larger questions. Samer, what we are witnessing today is that most observers have set their sights on the coming reconstruction period as the next phase of Syria's conflict. In your book, you also raise two questions about the emerging reconstruction program while offering a critique of its central features. Can you talk about that? 
So when we speak of reconstruction, the assumption is that there will be an externally financed, externally led process, you know, to recreate uh, social and political institutions in the country. So there will be constitutional changes, there will be changes to the parliament, there will be changes to electoral laws, and, you know, we'll rebuild hospitals, we'll rebuild schools, and all of these things. So if we think of any country that suffered from either disaster or war in the last 25 years, we can imagine what Syrian reconstruction may look like. Now, the assumptions that people make about Syrian reconstruction are really divorced from the reality in the sense that all of those other examples that we've seen in the last 20, 25 years, whether it's a tsunami or war or whatever, the governments in power uh, or even the regimes, depending on, uh, on the case, were governments that had relations and were friendly with the quote-unquote international community. So the donors, the financiers, the predominantly Western countries, uh, countries of the global north, did not seriously question the legitimacy of these governments and thus had no problem funneling money and aid through governments. And we don't have that in Syria. You have a regime that has remained in power that virtually all of the donor countries have labeled illegitimate. Virtually all of the donor countries' governments have said that the leader, the president, should be removed through political transition. And all of the political demands of the donor countries from 2011 to 2019 have not been realized, even the most simple kind of political demands. And so there's this conundrum now, this dilemma of whether and how Syrian reconstruction should be funded if the government in power is not a government that is seen as legitimate by the major donor countries. And the answer to that question, the way in which donor countries have gotten around this dilemma, is to focus on humanitarian relief, to focus on humanitarian aid, to think about ways in which reconstruction cannot benefit the regime. And this is the way in which they kind of discursively and in terms of policy work their way around the dilemma. So that's one side of the coin. The other side is that we have to ask what visions of reconstruction are inside of Syria. What does the regime itself see as as reconstruction? I think when we ask that question, a very different picture emerges. On the one hand, all of these questions of rehabilitating schools and hospitals and whatever, and having comprehensive national programs of reconstruction, that's simply not on offer in Syria. It's simply not something that the government is talking about. Reconstruction is not seen in a kind of comprehensive national and generational way, which I think that we should be thinking of reconstruction as something that is achieved over one or two generations. It's simply not what's happening in the country. If you talk to people that are in the country or who are based in the region, what they will tell you, or at least what they're telling me, is that the government is very much focused on rebuilding certain key areas. So there's a geographic concentration and also demonstrating that there is kind of movement in the economy through the creation of malls, through the creation of uh, new homes and and things of that nature. So you have a really urban-focused reconstruction that is concentrated in creating kind of new housing and new infrastructure. On the other hand, 
there's really no reflection on the part of the regime on how to finance any of this. I mean, that's the really interesting thing. So there's this idea that, okay, you know, let's just build a bunch of stuff and that constitutes reconstruction. We don't need to be thinking about this kind of rehabilitating the national healthcare system or the national education system. Let's just build things in the urban areas. On the other, there's not really a kind of understanding of how to pay for any of this. There's an assumption that the money will just come from its regional allies. There's no master plan for Syrian reconstruction. I mean, many people in the West look at this Law 66, which is essentially a kind of land grab law. You know, they look at these things and say, well, this is a cornerstone of reconstruction. That's actually not the case. Well, talk about that. Actually, this is an important feature, this issue of property confiscation. Yeah. So if you talk to most Syrian analysts who work in the country or in the region, they will tell you that the major problem now in terms of property is valuation, is the way in which laws are being created now to undervalue property, which facilitates their expropriation by the state. So Syrian property laws are very complicated, very, very, very complicated. So establishing ownership is very difficult. Establishing value is very difficult. Establishing the legality of exchange has become very difficult because the regime has annulled all exchanges in opposition-held areas. So, for example, if I sold you a piece of property in Aleppo, In 2014, when it was under opposition control, the government has annulled those transfers. And so it creates confusion in ownership. It creates confusion in in the kind of legality of transfer. And it creates these conditions essentially for the undervaluing of land that then private or public interest can expropriate. You also have in Syria something that I think is akin to a process of social erasure, where the legal identities of people are being totally erased. And so in these former opposition-held areas, there are these decrees that are being, uh, decrees perhaps not the right word, it's like um, the Minister of Finance is publishing the names of individuals who are now subject to laws that don't allow them to have bank accounts, own property, go to school, things of that nature. So they're essentially like deleting or erasing the identities of Syrians, some Syrians in these former opposition areas. And so this is also going to create immense confusion in the property system in Syria, because now I might have my name, for example, on a piece of property, but I'm not allowed to have a bank account. I'm not allowed to own the property. And so it's much more comprehensive than these big picture land grabs that are happening. I mean, it's very very much on a micro level. It's tied to eliminating Syrian legal identities, erasing Syrian legal identities. It's actually much worse than we think it is. If if Law 66 is the only thing we're worried about, some because Law 66 actually, what it does is creates big geographic zones, big land areas to say, okay, you know, these five blocks. It used to be informal housing. Now we're going to expropriate it and and take it, and that's problematic and that is destructive in many ways, but it's also not the only thing the regime is doing to expropriate land. But in terms of policy, so there isn't, you know, some grand land policy. It's all these small things that are happening and and they're producing this effect. In terms of a grand policy in 2016, it's, you know, it's quite amazing that 
nobody talks about this, but in 2016, the regime declared that its new economic strategy for reconstruction was something called the National Partnership. And the National Partnership was not a series of targeted policies, and this is sort of what I'm talking about in terms of reconstruction, was not a series of policies aimed at education or healthcare or infrastructure, but an approach to reconstruction that centralized public-private partnerships as the way to achieve reconstruction goals. So they didn't actually set any goals. They didn't say, okay, we want to create, say, 100 new schools by 2020. None of these specific reconstruction goals. What they said was, in order to rebuild these schools, we are going to do so through public-private partnerships. And what that strategy essentially does is open up the Syrian economy to external capital, to external investment. And they will create opportunities, say, okay, we need to build schools and operate them. And in exchange for building and operating the schools, we will give these companies the land. I mean, this is the public part of the public-private partnership. So not only is land, I mean, this is sort of the discussion we had earlier about the Iranian commercial interests taking on industrial roles, productive roles, taking over control of land. This is all happening through public-private partnerships, that the Syrian government may or may not expropriate land or may transfer existing land or assets, factories to private interests in exchange for those private interests operating them. So this solves the government's financial issue. You know, they don't have money to pay for these things. And so what they're essentially doing is trying to create these, quote unquote, opportunities for public-private partnerships that allow external capital to come in, external economic interests to come in and invest in the country. So it's really haphazard. It's, it's not even goal-oriented. It's not even focused on one or many sectors. It's simply a strategy. You know, we are going to get to our reconstruction goals through this. And what's happening is going to be a massive transfer of assets and resources from the Syrian public to private interests that are predominantly regional and not Syrian. And you also mentioned that in this reconstruction project, there's less emphasis on addressing the humanitarian crisis. Yeah, exactly. Um, One of the great kind of tragedies of all this is that many of the Syrians who have been displaced are really in many ways uh, at the mercy of their own government, uh, regional governments, uh, and now will be really reliant on the humanitarian organizations that provide them relief. There's no you know, there's no repatriation process. There's no serious repatriation process. We don't see um, a large-scale attempt on the part of the the regime to bring people back. In fact, a few days ago, there was an article in one of the major newspapers uh, precisely about this, that many of the people who are being asked to come back who are being incentivized to come back, many of them were actually being imprisoned. Many of them were being abducted and things of that nature. And and this is uh, tied to what I was saying earlier about these decrees or public bulletins that erase the identities of Syrians. There's a massive blacklist of Syrians now that was created by the government. And in some ways, that list is 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 very i mean in many ways it's very scary but it's you know the list if you share a name with somebody you could be 
imprisoned. Uh, if you are mistaken for somebody, you could be imprisoned. And that list is generated in a number of different ways. So people who did not serve in the military, people who were named in interrogations, people who were suspected of fighting with armed groups, people who left their public sector positions, people who left their police positions, all these things. So the lists are massive. We're talking tens, if not hundreds of thousands of names that are on these lists. And increasingly, the names on these lists are being rendered uh, erased. They're being uh, rendered illegal in a way. They can't come into the country. They can't. So um, that in and of itself prevents repatriation because if anybody fears that they may be on one of these lists, then they're not going to come back. And even if they come back and uh, don't fear for their safety, they might not be able to do basic things like open up a bank account. Um, and, and so we don't see a large-scale repatriation process. We see a kind of shifting of responsibility of the displacement crisis onto regional states. And now, I mean, we talked at the very beginning about Syria fatigue. Uh, there's tremendous pressure on Syrians who are living in these countries now. There's a, a tightening of their of their rights. There's a tightening of their mobility. And a lot of donors are no longer providing the kind of humanitarian relief that's needed to sustain these communities. And there's no hope in kind of returning to uh, a government that is uh, essentially having a campaign to, er to erase these people from existence, to erase many of them from existence. Well, the primary focus seems to be um, disposition and depopulation social engineering of the population. In the, Absolutely. In there, there, was a, there was a quote I doubt the truthfulness of it, but I think the sentiment is really is really important. There's a, a quote from the head of the Air Force Intelligence who said that he would rather have a country where of uh, 10 million loyal citizens than 30 million unloyal citizens, disloyal citizens, or something like that. The idea was that it's really fine if 20 million people are are dead or outside of the country, and uh, it's very it's not verifiable, but I think that. Regardless, it expresses a sentiment, and it, it, it's easily believable that elements of the regime would be fine if a, a huge segment of the population that they deem to be disloyal were rendered invisible. Clearly, there would also be you know, a source of cheap labor for future you know, uh, capital accumulation that may take place in the country. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, even dispossess, the, region, uh, the dispossess yeah. and basically uprooted masses. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, years ago, uh, when I would attend some of these discussions and workshops uh, put on by people in the Syrian diaspora, Syrians, you know, they would some of them would speak openly about turning Syria into a sweatshop. They said, look, oh, people have suffered. And why not? Why not just turn the country into a sweatshop? And, you know, I was appalled, of course, then. But now if we look at what kinds of humanitarian and development interventions are happening inside of the country, it's actually not far from reality that what we see in many of these, and we see it in, we definitely see it in Jordan. We see it now this outside of the Syrian context, but we see it in Ethiopia as well, with many of the refugee camps where Eritreans are. And we see it as a kind of emerging uh, practice of humanitarian organizations, which is to turn refugees into labor, which is to integrate refugees into the uh, process of capital accumulation while they remain refugees. 
And these kinds of development interventions are, I mean, forget about not being sustainable. They, they don't provide the kind of material conditions for, for living decent lives. And they're interventions that don't sustain rights. And that's what people need. People need rights now. And increasingly, they're, they're being taken away from them. Huh. Sam, we're going back and looking at the trajectory of the Syrian conflict. You argue that a stalemate defined the conflict until late June 2015. Uh, that was just three months before the Russian military intervention. Can you talk about the main features and drivers of the stalemate? From 2011 to 2015, the conflict emerged in a way that made it very difficult to, uh, to settle. So on the political front, there were no serious deliberations. There were no serious negotiations. There were UN-led processes. There were UN envoys. There were all of these things. And everyone said, yes, yes, we agree. And we'll show up, you know, to the, we'll show up to Geneva. We'll show up to wherever you want. And we'll sit and we'll kind of yell at each other across the table. But there were no serious substantive negotiations. And that was uh, in part because the, the regional powers that were feeding the armed groups on all sides of the conflict the regional powers were not committed to a political solution. They were essentially committed to a military solution. So we're talking Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Russia, Turkey, um, the United States, you know, all of these countries that were intervening into Syria wanted to resolve the conflict on the battlefield. Now, what happened and the way in which a stalemate occurred was that all of the groups were kind of strong enough to survive on the battlefield. They were able to continue fighting, but they were not strong enough to defeat each other. And so you would have one, say, uh, a regime-aligned group besiege an area, but you know, a few kilometers down the road, it would be the opposite. It would be a rebel group that had besieged an area. You would have kind of contraction, acquisition of territory here and there. But more or less, we knew what the front lines were. They changed a bit. They shifted. But there was a, a really plural battlefield. There were not two sides. You know, the, the regime-aligned forces would fight certain Free Syrian army units. Other Free Syrian army units were fighting Jabhat al-Nusra. ISIS may have been fighting the PYD. And so there were many battles that were happening on the battlefield. It was not two sides. It was not this sort of game of risk where you move people around and, and, and whatnot. And in those many battles, Syria's geography was becoming very fragmented. And none of those forces that were fighting, whether it was the Syrian Kurds, ISIS, Nusra, the FSA units, the other Islamist units, none of these forces were strong enough to really overtake and hold territory. And that was mostly fueled by uh, outside forces that funded these armed groups, but also the war economy and the way in which that uh, the war economy sustained the reproduction of those armed groups. So you have this uh, political stalemate because any uh, the, the international processes are nobody's committed to them, nobody takes them seriously. And then you have a military uh, stalemate because the battlefield is being fed by multiple sides that uh, creates and sustains this fragmentation. And really, the only thing that could have um, destroyed the stalemate was eventually what did, which was a large-scale Russian intervention. And almost, I mean, it had been sort of coming, if you will, but 
when Qatar and Saudi Arabia sort of pulled out and the the strategic interests of the regional powers began to shift a bit. And it was clear that the U.S. was not going to lead some Libya-style intervention aimed at regime change. Uh, the calculations really, I think, began to change as well as the geography of the battlefield. So it became uh, increasingly became a consolidated battlefield rather than a fragmented one. Samer, when you write about Russian-led aerial and maritime attacks, you identify suffocation of supply routes was the single most important factor in breaking the military stalemate in 2016. Can hmm. you talk about that? Yeah. So the, the the major challenge for any armed group in Syria was how to reproduce itself. So it had to reproduce itself in three ways. It needed fighters. So for those who died or defected or left or whatever, it had to keep producing them. Um, it needed money uh, in order to do two things, to acquire weapons and also to govern. Because uh, governance was a really important uh, part of the, the work of armed groups. And third, it had to find ways to keep to keep fighting. And uh, so they had to find weapons. They had to continuously acquire weapons. And the way, the ways in which the supply networks emerged in Syria was, you know, Le even Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, Iraq, uh, all of these countries, there were uh, supply routes coming from them that fed both the governance and the military needs of the armed groups. And so what the Russian intervention did was effectively cut off those routes. It, it made it impossible for those groups to reproduce themselves, either in their governance or in their military capacity. So they were no longer getting weapons there. They were no longer getting medicine. They were no longer getting food. And it, they became entrapped. And it's, it's in the context of that entrapment of the groups that the Russians were able to impose these conditions of reconciliation on these groups. This is kind of, this is tied to the Idlib strategy of concentrating people in there. When they cut off the supply routes of these groups, when they were no longer able to bring in food, no longer able to bring in medicine, uh, weapons, and things of that nature, uh, the Russians and the regime would come to them and say, okay, well, here's a deal. You can be reconciled with the regime. You can uh, pledge loyalty to us. The fighters can be integrated into the army, or you can go to Idlib. And, and so the suffocation of the supply routes uh, uh, cut off the reproductive capacity of the group. It eliminated the reproductive capacity of the groups and it allowed the, the regime and its allies to come to them and say, well, here's the deal, take it or leave it. So the, re the regime politically said, well, you know, we're reconciling with them. We've, we've given them the option to kind of, to see the error of their ways and to come over to, to our side. And that's effectively what happened. And those that didn't, those that did not want to accept the terms of the reconciliation agreement were uh, displaced into Idlib. You also write that the Battle of Aleppo revealed the basic strategy of the regime and its Russian allies toward rebel areas. What did that strategy entail? So it was a, a strategy first of uh, besiege, besieging the areas. So that was tied to suffocating the supply routes, not letting anything in or out. And then once the area was encircled, once there was kind of siege, then indiscriminate, relentless destruction of those areas. 
and and this this is exactly what we're seeing in Idlib now of the bombing of hospitals, the bombing of bakeries, the bombing of places of gathering, the uh, complete and uh, relentless destruction of those areas that make it impossible to live in. And, and it's those conditions were intended to to force the armed groups into submission. There's nothing, I mean, I don't want to say there's any nothing strategic, but this is you know, barrel bombs to strike. I mean, look in Idlib just this week, we had the destruction of, I think, six or seven medical institutions. It's very targeted, very deliberate, very horrific, relentless destruction of, of areas that were besieged. And it's under those conditions that people would be, quote unquote, reconciled. Hmm. Shifting gears here a little bit, Samir, you write that the regime violence, much like the violence of the rebel groups, is privatized, decentralized, hmm. and increasingly civilianized. Can you talk about that? Hmm. So the army was unable to fulfill the the battlefield necessities. It was unable to, uh, you know, it was too stretched. The army was, uh, you know, in terms of its uh, manpower, in terms of its resources, all of those things, the army was simply unable to wage that kind of war. And so two things sort of happened. One was uh, there were informal groups that ar- that were created in regime areas. And these were kind of local defense groups. These are neighborhood defense groups. These are people who may have been loyalists or who just wanted to protect themselves in their areas. And they picked up guns and they started kind of fighting. So we say, you know, it's all part of the regime, but really they were not integrated into the into the military apparatus in, in any way. So there was a lot of kind of informal violence. There was a lot of thuggery, a lot of kind of opportunism, a lot of looting, those sorts of things. Those people were not uh, kind of state employees as it would be, but they were nevertheless civilians who became fighters. Uh, so uh, on the regime side, there was this institutionalized group called the National Defense Forces. And the National Defense Forces were are essentially state employees. They're given um, identity cards. They have rights to pensions. They are in all, like they're public sector employees, essentially. And they have guns. They perform a militia role. But they're very different than the army. So the army, for example, the I'll just give you one very quick example. The army is, of course, made up of Syrian citizens. But the citizens who are in the army cannot serve in the provinces or the localities where they're from. So if you come from Dar'a, uh, province, you you cannot serve there. Whereas the National Defense Forces, the rules are very relaxed. So if you are from Dar'a and you're part of the National Defense Forces, you can serve in Dar'a. So it's very uh, it's very much a localized uh, neighborhood, former civilians that make up these forces. So you have the kind of informal thuggery almost, and then you have the National Defense Forces. And then you have other militias who are some combination of external fighters who've come from maybe Pakistan or Iraq uh, or Iran or wherever, uh, and and Syrian fighters. And they usually operate under the command of either Hezbollah or the Syrian military, or one of these divisions, the fourth or fifth division of the of the Syrian army. 
many of those people that are fighting, whether it's informally, whether it's through the National Defense Forces, whether it's in the militias, many of them were civilians before the war. Uh, and many of them are not, as I said, part of the army. And so that's what I was referring to by calling this uh, privatized civilianized violence. What One thing that happened in Syria is that when the economy collapsed and some people d- could not or did not want to leave the country, the, you know, there really wasn't anything economically for them. There were no sources of employment. So many people got funneled into the armed groups. And what we've seen throughout the conflict is that many of them joined these groups not for political or ideological reasons, but but for economic ones. And that's why we see a lot of movement between the armed groups. And it's also why we're seeing now a lot of the former rebel, rebel groups are now fighting on the side of the regime. Because for them, uh, there were economic economic interests, economic motives that were that were encouraging them to fight, not political or ideological ones. Let's talk about what you discuss in your book about the emergence of warlords among the pro-government national defense forces mm. and, and, its, and the implications for the Syrian regime. You write, throughout Syria, the national defense forces, NDF elite, are emerging as a conglomeration of warlords with their own agendas and interests that may not coincide with those of the Assad regime in the future. Similarly, non-Syrian militias active in the country are deeply embedded in the war economy and are especially active in looting and extortion. So how is that going to be reconciled with the uh, consolidation of power in Syria? Mm. So one way to see it is as central to the post-conflict order. Because what these groups are doing, because they're very localized, because they're autonomous is not the right word, but because they are in these kind of specific locales, they are emerging as a center of power, uh, not just vis-a-vis the regime, not just kind of alternative or autonomous center of power vis-a-vis the regime, but they're also kind of emerging as a buffer. They're emerging as an interface between the regime and, and citizens. And so through the process of ruling uh, and governing over these populations, they're providing a function to the regime. They're, they're, they're ensuring the suppression of, of citizens, of people who uh, get unruly or anything of the sort. One thing that happens in Syria quite often now is that citizens will make complaints about national defense forces, commanders and fighters, and the state will intervene and prosecute them. Or the state, or or they'll you know wind up dead, or you know things of that nature. So there is a, a play here in a lot of ways between the regime and the and the NDF and these populations. The NDF um, has been most strong in uh, Latakia, uh, in areas where there are you know probably tens of thousands of members of the NDF where they've been able to control the ports, where there's been a lot of economic benefit to being part of the NDF. And I think that's where there's a lot of tension between the regime because the the NDF forces might have too much power, they might be encroaching on economic interests of the elite. But on the day-to-day, you know, they really are an extension of the regime's power in, in some ways. And I think that ultimately it's beneficial to the regime. Samer, going back in the history to talk about the Syrian regime, 
You, in your book, Syria, you write for the Ba'ath regime, then the origins of its social base and the social forces that are incorporated into the Ba'athist politics are central to understanding the rise and consolidation of the regime and, and the strategies it employed to remain in power. You also write the incorporation of these social forces into the state did not occur organically or through popular acceptance and adherence to Ba'athist ideology but rather through some combination of corporatism and repression. Who were these social forces and, who, and how were they incorporated into the state? And how does that help us understand the future of Syria today? Mm. That's a really great question. So uh, in the context of the Ba'athist trajectory, we've seen rapid deliberate social transformation. So in the post-colonial period, even in the post-war period, so in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, you had what I would call a kind of rule by the 1%. You had a landed elite in Syria that had emerged in the late Ottoman period that had managed to remain in power during the through the French mandate. And uh, as parliamentarians were able to preserve their interests through control of the state. And a lot of the upheavals in Syria in the 50s and 60s were a direct result of the attempts by particular social forces to gain access to parliament, to gain access to power. And the way in which this culminates is in the Ba'athist revolution of 1963, where the Ba'ath party um, takes over and it's very much a military-led you know, it's a, it's a kind of military coup and it takes over and it overthrows these landed elite. And it does so in the name of the peasants, the excluded, the rural areas, the military, all of these groups that had grown uh, numerically in size over the course of the French mandate, but whose demographic power was never reflected in any political power. So the, these, these groups, again, peasants, military, uh, many kind of non-urban elites, they were not granted access to political power. And the only way that they could achieve it was through the coup. And so the Ba'ath came to power kind of in the name of these social forces. And after 1970, when Hafez al-Assad had initiated what he called the corrective revolution and taken over control of the Ba'ath party, what he had done is marshaled the resources of the state to incorporate those social forces. So they were not just incorporated into parliament that ultimately was not the end goal was not just simply representation into parliament but the kind of material incorporation the economic incorporation of those social forces into the state and so you had the you know the creation of a comprehensive kind of agricultural cooperative network you had the massive expansion of the public sector which even on the eve of the uprising constituted 25% of of Syrian uh, workforce you had a massive expansion of healthcare, a massive expansion of, of education, and the creation of opportunities for what became a Syrian middle class, partly that was professional, that was cultivated through the public sector. And so it was not simply through political incorporation or through political representation that these social forces that had previously existed on the political peripheries of the Syrian state uh, were incorporated, but actually through through the, the marshalling of Syrian resources. And this was done through an attack on the landed elite, through nationalizations, through the, uh, uh, again, through the creation of the public sector, 
through uh, an attack, if you will, on the Syrian private sector that never eliminated the Syrian private sector, but really put uh, clamps on it. And this really defined, in many ways, the first two decades of Hafez al-Assad's rule from the 70s into the 80s. And in the late 80s, there was a gradual transition away from, there was a gradual delinking uh, of these social forces to the state. So the subsidies that sustained these relationships were gradually eliminated, gra very gradually eliminated. There were increasing privatizations. Public sector assets were not sold off. But by the 2000s, you had private banks, you had private insurance companies, you had laws about private education. And so you had this process of privatization that started in the 90s and was accelerated in the 2000s that was a process of transformation, a process of delinking those social forces from the state. And what those processes of privatization did was in many ways reintroduce the capitalist class reintroduced the uh, the bourgeois into the into the state, and again, this was not simply through uh, representation in parliament, which of course happened. So you had all these business people who were uh, uh, all of a sudden in parliament. It wasn't just that; it was through the creation of new economic opportunities that could foster wealth creation and wealth accumulation. So. Privatization, gradual privatization was happening in Syria while land was being denationalized. Privatization was happening while land was being, uh, agricultural land was being fragmented, for example, uh, while subsidies on machinery were, were being withdrawn and, and, and so on. And so the, the, the processes happened in parallel. And I would argue that over time that represented not only a delinking of of those uh, previously incorporated social forces, but the incorporation of a very narrow, uh, mostly urban uh, economic elite. So adding to that, you, you write that the Syrian regime's populist authoritarian model that represented an alliance between the army, peasants, workers, and the Ba'ath party, and the public sector had exhausted um, itself by the 2000s and gave way for a new model that instead reflected um, the economic interest of the urban classes, economic elites and regime officials. And as you mentioned, this new model of Basfi's development would stress uh, capital accumulation and not redistribution. And by the time the uprising began in 2011, there was a metamorphosis of this program mm. the Basis had started. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the interesting thing is that the, the Ba'ath Party could not abandon the, the previous decades. They could not politically abandon them. It couldn't say that we were wrong. It couldn't say that this model was exhausted. It couldn't say the, it couldn't really publicly say anything that would undermine uh, the politics of the post 1970s period. And so what you had was the articulation of an economic vision called the social market economy. And the idea was that you could achieve greater social gains through market economies. That was the assumption that this is uh, not an abandonment, but a kind of updating of Ba'athist economics, of Ba'athist political economy. That yes, we may feel some pain here and there. Yes, privatization will come with some adjustments, but ultimately this is the best way to achieve social gains. And the way in which the party 
presented this politically was not to abandon public education or public health care or the public sector. So those things were not privatized per se. But what they did was open up the space for the entry of private capital into the economy, into education, into health care, um, uh, into other areas of investment. And so the public sector was preserved. Uh, and that was as much political as it was a kind of any it was it was more political, I think, than any out of any sort of economic imperative. But the party was really caught between these social commitments that it it had made in previous generations, and I think an understanding of what it meant to foster social chaos through economic dislocation. Uh, and the realities of this new market economy. And so the way they got kind of around it was to say, well, yes, we, we are moving towards a market economy, but we're doing so in a very particular way that, that preserves and advances social gains. And what we saw in Syria is that there was an emergent market economy with deteriorating uh, social gains in some cases. And, and this is, I think, really the immediate material context of, of the uprising. And I think this is this is significant uh, to mention that half the uh, housing or residential dwellings in Aleppo were informal. Just up until yes. I mean there yeah. are I mean yeah. they were informal before the Aleppo uh, conflict or the war on Aleppo. Yes. So that was actually a, a major study done by a Syrian economist named Samir Seyfan who who actually estimated that it was uh, 50% in both Damascus and Aleppo, that the housing was informal. So, so the that, two major cities. So that, to uh, me, is very telling in terms of what policies had been impl- implemented as we were, as it led up to uh, the uprising in 2011, how it had such profound impact on the society. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, if you look at Aleppo, for example, there's been some very interesting work done on the the social conditions of informal housing in Aleppo prior to the conflict. And really, the state was completely absent. And I'm not sure what the case was in, in Damascus, but in much of the research that was done there, the state was completely absent. In some cases, uh, there was no electricity, there's no running water in some of these areas. And it's, it's no coincidence that it's these areas where a lot of the unrest was cultivated uh, in a way. If it didn't start there, it had kind of spread there and, uh, and took root because uh, there were many people who were very much on the peripheries of any gains that were happening in Syria. And for me, I spent much of the 2000s going to Syria every year, uh, sometimes for months at a time, and you could visibly see the uh, effects of marketization in Syria. There were new cars, there were fancier cars, there were newer restaurants, there was uh, a kind of aesthetic to to the Syrian market economy, while at the same time, you, you could also visibly see an increase in uh, all sorts of other indicators of uh, social pressure. So uh, prices, for example, were really erratic. Uh, there were no more price controls. And, and people had tough time finding ways to uh, feed themselves. I remember uh, reading a story once about a Syrian public sector employee, a, Sy- a Syrian public sector employee with a PhD and a family of five was unlikely to uh, generate a salary that could feed that family reasonably. Yeah. yeah well, you, you can yeah. easily see the yeah. logic of neoliberal capital dominating yeah. a Syrian economy. 
as and, and absolutely I'm, I'm, I'm really uh, I don't see how people are surprised that that would lead to mass disaffection against the regime as you know the uprising started absolutely and this was happening throughout the country and if if we go to the agricultural areas we could date these pressures to the early 90s when land was denationalized and that set in motion a kind of process of uh, removing people from the land when machinery subsidies uh, uh, seed subsidies all of these subsidies that had sustained these rural communities just simply uh, uh, went away you know what that what that meant for people but even in the urban areas you know this the this the book ends for me as a as a researcher in Syria um, were in 2002 and 2010. And in 2002, if you went to Syria, um, you could, uh, as, as a, somebody coming from the outside, you could reasonably eat out every night. Uh, everything was very inexpensive. You could see the effect of subsidies around that, that life was relatively affordable. If you spoke to people, if you spoke to merchants, if you spoke to what we consider middle-class people, of course, People struggled, and of course, there were political issues, but in general, uh, food was accessible. And by 2010, the last time I visited, I remember many of my friends and colleagues who we used to go out to eat regularly to these restaurants, they kept telling me, well, we can't, we can't afford to go, we don't want to go. And I would say, it's okay, I have a uh, I, I can pay for it. It's it's my treat, and they would say, no, it's even it's even too expensive for you. It's more expensive than the United States. They would tell me, uh, and sure enough, I remember going to a restaurant and paying comparable price to what I would pay here for a meal, which is you know maybe about fifteen twenty dollars for per person. And this is anecdotal, but it's certainly my experience as somebody who had an eye on these kinds of economic changes that were happening in Syria. And you could see it in friends and family. And then you could see it on the broader macro level that life became much more difficult for many people in the 2000s. And that is, again, uh, the, the kind of bigger context in which this uprising began. And, you know, again, if we want to look into the future, how is the Syrian regime going to be able to resolve these issues? I mean, with mm. this such such major damage to the infrastructure of the country, mm. and uh, you know uh, the fact that the regime probably lost most of its legitimacy. So, how are you going to rebuild? I mean, that's yeah. to me. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. I I think that the main focus of the regime now is just to build from inside out. Mm -hmm. And maybe just to build on the inside, because I don't see any evidence of a comprehensive national strategy. I don't see uh, evidence of a national vision for reconstruction. And I think that for all the things we know about how problematic and destructive the reconstruction of Beirut was, I don't think there's there have been any lessons learned here that I think we'll see a kind of reconstruction of the urban areas, concentration of money and uh, funding there. And I think that the reconstruction period will in many ways extend the conflict, will extend the conditions of conflict. I don't anticipate that the the loyalty, quote unquote, of Syrian people and communities now will somehow be rewarded 
by some comprehensive program that will bring them uh, regular electricity, clean water, good schools, and good hospitals. I, I simply don't anticipate that. And I, I don't think that's on offer for the regime. I think that what has happened, if anything, is at this point, the rule of violence, um, to borrow a term from a book about Syria, the rule of violence prevails. Yeah, it will be a top-down approach to uh, yep. reconstruction because they don't have the the will nor the nor the capability to mobilize from below. So that's basically not an option. So let me just uh, finish our conversation here by pointing out to another um, feature, if you like, of Syria and and discussions on Syria. Much has been said and written about the sectarian features of the civil war in Syria. In your book, Syria, you write about uh, the Ba'ath Party, and you write about how they they were drawing on socialist ideals uh, to revamp institutions to ensure the stability of the regime. You write that while the party had developed across sectarian leadership and social alliances, sectarianism remained a factor in intra-regime politics. So talk about this sectarian component of the Ba'ath rule, and this is something that is going to remain, or if anything, it has been amplified and intensified as a result of this conflict, no? Yes, yes. So uh, it's not the case that the the Ba'ath party itself as a party was ever Alawi in its core. It always had Sunni leadership, Uh, and it's not the case that the regime... If, if we consider the regime to be composed of party elites, military elites, uh, security elites, that's th- that sort of thing, uh, in terms of its composition was not strictly sectarian. But within the core of the regime, the main decision makers were often were often Alawi, were predominantly Alawi. Uh, does that mean they ruled in a kind of in the interests of the Alawi community? Not necessarily. Does it mean that Sunnis were not incorporated into the regime? No, not at all. Uh, What it means is that there was a very delicate balancing of sectarian representation and a suppression, suffocation, a clamping down of sectarian interests outside of the Alawi community that could be articulated by the regime. And, And so what do I mean by that? All opposition to the regime was, of course, suppressed, regardless of what community an individual or a group came from. But at the same time, I think some of the heaviest collective repression. So if we look at collective repression of the regime, most of that has been over the course of the conflict directed at what we might, you know, what we generally think of as as Sunni communities. So um, th- there's very complicated layers to to the regime's sectarian composition and to its sectarian politics. So in in one of the one of the better books uh, from many many years ago about Syria made a very interesting claim on the regime's Alawi elite developing a very deliberate policy of of marrying the sons and daughters of Sunni leaders. And the reason for this was to kind of cross-pollinate, if you will, like to 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 shield the regime from the criticism that it was acting in the interests of the Alawi community. And so those layers make it very, very complicated, cosmetically at least, in the way in which we see the regime. So have there always been Sunni and other minority elites as part of 
the party and the centers of power, absolutely. But yeah, I think within that, the kind of very core, small, tighter kind of uh, core of, of regime power was predominantly Halloween. Samir, any final thoughts on the future of Syria? Uh, perhaps um, maybe a guard against all the cynicism uh, <laughs> and maybe a disclaimer that, that, that maybe all, hopefully all the cynicism will, will, not, will not materialize. But I, I think that one thing that Syria, I mentioned this earlier, but one thing that many Syrian oppositionists have started doing is talking about Syria in generational terms. And I think that's very important for us. So what's happening now and what I really appreciate about this discussion is the ability to historicize the discussion, to go back in time, to see things within their broader context and trajectory and to understand what's happening today in Syria as the consequence of many other events and processes. And I think that in the same way in which we historicize what's happening now, we need to be able to think not just in the in the immediate kind of short term, but but in the long term as well. And 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 what could possibly unfold in Syria, uh, especially in relation to regional events.